Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Today, uh, I've got Marley uh, with Rehumanize. This is Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist, and we're going to talk about um, the topic of restorative justice, and uh, as well as the victim and perpetrator sometimes being the same person, just fast forwarded through time. So, uh, uh, a perpetrator is often, if you could look back into their childhood, is generally the victim. And maybe we could even look at the acts that they're, the horrific acts that they're perpetuating as the expression of that trauma looking for some healing. And, uh, and some people are really, really troubled uh, with, with these vexations, if you want to call them that, whether it's uh, this idea that they have to steal love or steal sex in order to try to feel some type of connection uh, and I know with men, at least I can speak for myself, that I've suffered deeply with shame. And, uh, and it, it's insatiable the amount of uh, substitute for true love and compassion that I could receive in order to quench or quell the shame. Like, even if I would achieve tons of attention, it would only quell the shame for a moment. And then the shame would then essentially like almost like a virus uh, take over the whatever love or whatever was directed at me. It's almost like a cold darkness that's absorbing the warm light. And I think that a lot of men that are perpetrators of rape or sexual assault or some type of child molestation or child abuse uh, also were victims of those same things as children themselves. And we often forget that connection. So uh, Marley, I came into contact with you and your work uh, and you're young, and uh, and I want to acknowledge you for your courage and that you were able to, I mean, I'll let you talk about it. What, how, how are people hearing about you now, and uh, what is it that Rehumanize is about? What have you learned from all of that? Yeah, thank you for having me on today and for that intro, um, to my intro. I recently went through a restorative justice process um, which was the conclusion to my sexual assault case. So this is one of the first cases in North America to end this way through the legal system with absolutely no incarceration sentence um, or complete acquittal. So in very human terms, what this means is that instead of concluding things with a criminal trial and my assailant either being incarcerated or acquitted, he instead went to therapy for several months. And then we eventually met in a mediation circle um, that lasted eight hours. So it was an immensely life-changing process. When you and say assailant, what, what happened to you? Yeah. Um, so back in 2016, three years ago now, um, I was raped by a stranger um, after a night at a bar. Um, I don't feel like super going into the details now, but, uh, it was, it was pretty much an undeniable assault 
I think I've, I've had experiences like many of us or all of us of, of consent that's a little bit blurry. Like, oh, was it consensual? Was it not? Alcohol was involved. It's confusing. It's not as simple as we think. Um, but this, this was a really undeniable experience. Like, I clearly said no. Um, my mouth was covered at one point. Uh, eventually, I just, like, went into freeze state. The assault lasted four hours. Mm. Uh, and I pretty much ran out of there when I realized that it was getting light out. And when this all started, it was nighttime. So um, that sent me on like the biggest descent of my life. Like after that, for about a year, and I mean, it's not that that linear, but for about a year, I was like really struggling with PTSD and depression. And at some points, like considering suicide and just, I, I think like to really simply summarize what I was feeling it was just like such global heartbreak for the ways that we're treating one another in the world and um, that's obviously really inspired the work I'm doing now it's inspired my decision to choose restorative justice and to fight for that as a norm hmm. so I could imagine that people are potentially listening to this, although the people that would be listening to my podcast would probably be more of the open-minded, compassionate, wanting, you know, maybe have tried the more punishing elements, but they might be listening and hearing, and I know you addressed this in some of your other talks, uh, that you, you might have uh, supported, quote-unquote, rape culture, whatever that means, uh, mm -hmm. by letting this guy off the hook without severe punishment. Like in reality, maybe he should have went to prison and had the scarlet letter of uh, uh, a sex crime on his uh, criminal background for life. So he could identify as a sex criminal. And also maybe even if you were younger, I don't know how old you were a little, you weren't quite under 18. If you were under 18, maybe he'd get beaten and maybe raped himself too. And in addition to all that, and maybe have to register as a sex offender for life and all of his neighbors would know about it. I mean, wouldn't that be, I mean, wouldn't that really teach him the lesson? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the way you worded that because it just inspires so much <laughs> thought for me. Um, I think one of the biggest things that, that my movement rehumanizes focused on is that we need to equate justice with healing and not with punishment. And this is what the restorative and transformative justice movements have been saying for a long time. Um, it's interesting when, when you speak of rape culture, because that narrative has definitely come up uh, through other people's opinions and things. What I find is that rape culture is very much built on a foundation of us justifying that we can dehumanize one another. So, so at, at its very base, rape culture cannot exist un unless we say certain bodies don't matter, certain lives don't matter, certain people feel more than other people feel. Um, we have less empathy for these people than we do these people. Um, so I feel that a lot of the same things that justify rape also justify incarceration. So to me, to, to justify resorting to incarceration so quickly is quite likely not so separate 
from the paradigm of rape culture. Um, so I, I think that restorative justice is so beautifully paradigm shifting because it says, you know, in all actuality, we're not going to end dehumanization in the world by responding to dehumanization with dehumanization, with exiling and disposing of one another and deeming people monsters. Um, but rather we need to uplift cultural standards of empathy and, and believe that people have a capacity to transform. Um, so that's my vision of justice. And I recognize that the process I did is absolutely not for everyone. Um, but I think it's essential that we start asking ourselves what, what does justice look like to us and how can it bring the most healing? And is punishment really bringing us justice or healing? Marley, what what exactly did happen and what came up during these dialogues? Like, what did you learn about this man who would do such a horrible thing to you and put you and violate you and bring you to the brink of suicide, creating a deep, deep wound? I mean, from this wound, it looks like a, a huge gift has developed in a way, a gift of healing, the wounded healer. And uh, you're able, you were able to make it through this initia initiation process that is miserable. And some people would get upset if I even call what happened to you an initiation process. But frankly, initiation is a terrifying uh, experience that brings you outside of who you are and pulls you to the brink of everything you know as a fabric of reality and gives you this sometimes often bleak view of the entire world and what it means to be human. And it's in that clawing back and, you know, into the world, which sometimes is challenging, um, probably always is challenging. Initiation, by definition, it has, carries with it the risk that you don't make it. Uh, what came up in this experience with, with this man that had violated mm -hmm. you? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging, like, the depth of that descent and ascent process. It's definitely an intense journey. Um, yeah, I, I, I know that it's true that so often, like you shared, perpetrators of sexual violence are also victims of sexual violence. Um, and they often have a history of that. That was a big question for me with my assailant, not necessarily needing to know his history, but just like what happened in his life that led him to be able to do this. And that was actually present for me from the beginning, like from right after assault. Um, I think largely that's because during the actual assault, he kept apologizing. Mm. He kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but was continuing. And like, call me delusional, whatever. But in some capacity, it felt very sincere. Mm. Like, it felt like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, and it was, it's really heart wrenching to feel into that. Cause it's like, what's going on? What the hell is happening? Yeah. What's I had going a, on? I had a situation where I was having a totally, what appeared to be a normal conversation. I must've been 15. And, uh, I was talking to these one or two girls. I can't remember. I remember one of them. I still remember her name. And there was a guy that was standing there and we're all talking and he was pretty quiet most of the time. And I'm talking to this girl and then I'm talking to him and out of nowhere, he just punches me in the face. 
and it was totally premeditated, uh, like uh, unmeditated. I, I, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Like there was no hint that that was about to happen. And immediately after doing it, he goes, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I did that. I have no idea why I did that. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You could hit me back. Just hit me as hard as you want. I won't even do anything. Just hit me back. I feel so bad. And it seemed sincere. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck just happened? And, uh, yeah. and, I, and I didn't have enough chance to get mad or react because by the time I was like ready to react, he's apologizing sincerely. So it made me all confused. And the girl's mad at him. and like, what the hell's wrong with you? You fucking idiot. And I guess she knew him. And I found out later more about that whole dynamic and then we start all talking again and he's like you know you're sure you're okay and then 10 minutes later conversation going bam he does it again and i'm like i mean and at this point it it got really crazy and uh and i mean (laughs) all sorts of crazy things happen but like i guess the question is what would cause somebody to do that you know i mean come to find out he had a crush on this girl and uh and apparently like she was like probably showing attraction towards me and i think all of this was happening unconsciously i think you know mixed with alcohol or whatever the impulse control was gone so it just bypassed what was what was holding and i think people are just walking around holding all this shit and they're not talking about it you know probably a lot of men are walking around holding shame a lot of women are walking around holding shame a lot of people are holding anger and then all of a sudden it gets you know something that crisis moment happens, that innervation, you hit this point where it spills over and you experience whatever the hell's going on with you. And then this, this creates a very interesting dynamic of the victim and the perpetrator. And then they all both fall into the system of now I've got to go deal with my victimness and this perpetrator, you've got to fucking feel shame. And, and, and here we are and the, and the healing doesn't appear to happen. So I'll circle back to you. And this is one of the, I've been in situations similar to this where I can't quite explain what the hell's going on, but that that image came up for me very clearly, and I haven't told that story on my podcast before. Yeah, thank you for sharing. It's it's such a clear reflection. Um, whew, yeah, I think that something really interesting about my assailant is that he's sort of the perfect picture of privilege. And there's so much around like non-disclosure agreements and things. So I, I can't say too much about that, but tracing trauma um, for the sake of healing has been such a huge part of my life, whether that trauma is rooted in ancestry or society or patriarchy or media or like really clear experiences of abuse. Um, the reason that I feel that it's almost, um, I don't know what the word is, helpful for my story or, or better for my story that, that my assailant did not have such a clear circumstance of abuse to offer in terms of explanation. Mm. There was no like, oh, well, I experienced this too while I was young, mm. um, which would kind of make everyone go, oh, um, but it's a little more complex. It's a little more messy because he didn't have such a clear route. And I, I think the reason I say that's helpful is because when sharing this story, it inspires people to go deeper in asking why this happened instead of saying, oh, because he had a, an abusive father. And then the blame gets put to the father. Yeah. Like that's a little too easy. Like let's go even deeper than that to the root and say, where's the trauma coming from? At its very root, not getting passed through that chain, but at the very root of that chain. So exactly what you're sharing about 
the reality of being a man in patriarchy, it's, it's a gift of privilege that's packaged in a lot of pain often. And just like, this is something we're able to dialogue about in the circle. It's just like, okay, like there's a lot of chronic trauma from being a man in our culture. I think like, a lot of men really yeah. even hate other men and they right. also hate themselves for being a man when in fact masculinity, they, they hate masculinity in general when masculinity isn't a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the wounded masculine. And I, and I find that men are shamed in a different way from women in all of the shame research that I've done is uh, men are shamed for having emotions, for having feelings, for not being strong. Like even when you're born as a baby, you come out as a man, and most people, myself included, the minute you come out of the womb, the first thing they do, and I was, they didn't do a, a sex test for me when I was born. So I came out of the, I came out of the cesarean section. I didn't even come out of the womb. And uh, I, they had decided that I was a girl. My name was Natasha, and then I come out and surprise, my, I'm not a Natasha, you know, mm -hmm. and... Uh, and so here I am, it's like, okay, now we have a boy. And the minute that happens, what do we do with this boy, right? It's a boy. Okay, now we expect that, that we got to make him a man. We got to make him tough. He's got to be tougher than a, than a woman. Actually, men feel pain, physical pain, even greater than a woman because women, their, their pain, they're able to tolerate higher physical pain, from what I understand. I, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, because of childbirth and things of that nature, uh, and then what do they do is they take this boy, in my case, and in many cases, and they take and they put their most sensitive organ upon coming into this world inside of a thing and cut off the foreskin with no anesthetic whatsoever, and then put us in a, sometimes a, in a freaking glass box. And some terrible things happen to women too, but here we go, we have this extreme wound. We're wounded on our penis upon being born as a boy and then told not to feel emotion. And then we wonder why the hell men are so wounded. I mean, by definition, we come into this world and it's almost like the moment we come in, it's like, here's this wound right on this organ that is now this organ attached to these men. You know, and most of the men, I think, probably fight off whatever the urges are. And, uh, but they don't just go around sleeping with like a caveman with every girl that they could overpower, you know, but they run into these situations and then this ends up happening for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that you're bringing in this conversation of like masculinity. Um, and one of our like principles that rehumanize is holding all of our goals within the context of gender reconciliation. And the way I define this is instead of this paradigm of like patriarchy versus the future is female, mm -hmm. we really need to just sit down together and like look at the ways we've all been hurt and come together in solidarity and figure out how we can move forward and how we can address the harm that's been caused and experienced. Um, and this is something that hasn't really happened yet in terms of gender. Um, you know, it's been the witch trials, this like genocide on the feminine. And then now it's kind of flipping or it's like, there's like this threat of it flipping towards the hierarchy, reversing itself with this future as female notion. And that's not really what feminism is. Like when we talk about equality of the genders, that doesn't mean flipping the patriarchy on its head. So to me, restorative justice is such a beautiful embodiment of gender reconciliation 
because that's exactly what it is like and of course it's not always man woman but but when it is or whenever it's like how can we come together and ask how all beings have suffered within these systems how have exactly how has the masculine suffered and when we look at like how men have been asked to be soldiers to fight in wars um how they've been expected to protect the women and children in their village and their lives have been deemed invaluable less valuable it's, yeah women and children first that radiohead song you know women and right. children first <laughs> right you know so and, the, and like, the earth has nothing to do with men and it's actually not true in ancient mythology there were masculine elements of the earth too it wasn't just mother gaia there i i, I wish i had it in my memory i, I read so much about these things but the, the masculine was also present in the earth as well. And having both the masculine, I mean, even Hades that was considered as part of the earth, granted the Lord of the underworld, Pan, for example. Pan was the god of nature. And Pan is uh, was then t converted into Lucifer. And then basically all of our shadows were put on Pan. And it's no wonder that in a patriarchal Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition that we demonize quote-unquote demonize nature when the very king of the demons lucifer is depicted after the greek god pan which is where our religions have come from so mm. if men don't feel a place on the earth the challenge is is that i believe that they will destroy the damn thing and if men yeah. can't feel connected with women the, the the worry that i have is that they will try to seek connection in really twisted perverted ways you know, I live in Utah where now I grew up in I grew up in Hayward in Oakland area in the Bay Area before it was what it is today. Uh before it was gentrified, I was the only white kid that went outside. I mean, if there were some other in the neighborhood, I didn't really see them. Uh so uh now it's very different than that there. Uh If but what I but what I realize is if we can't come together and have these dialogues I mean, as a man, I'm nervous to have this conversation that somehow I will be labeled white privilege, even though I grew up in the projects, right? And lived in a group home. I got taken away from my family at 13 by child protective services. So like, I don't know, but like if somebody looks at me, they'll just think, oh, you're, you're white privilege. And I'm like, well, I lived in the projects. We like ate, like didn't have food a lot of times. It was a flea infestation. I was always getting bit. I was sick all the time. I lived in a group home. Crazy, weird shit happens in group homes. Like I've seen a lot of sexual abuse happen in this group home. So I could assure you that everybody is suffering to some degree because we're all interbeing, we're all interconnected. And it maybe sometimes is so easy for us to look at on the surface level, people that have a lot of money or always have or whatever, that somehow they're privileged. But if you look at the highest amount of drug use and the highest amount of you know weird twisted shit, you know, people don't end up with an island full of sex slaves because they, you know, are having a really awesome life. Like, that just wouldn't occur to somebody that feels alive. There's something that is dead and deeply sick. And to like really look at these people with compassion, it's fucking hard. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I can't imagine, I can actually, to some degree, imagine how hard it is to look at a perpetrator and try to feel some compassion for them. Um, and maybe I want to speak to that. How did you, how did you find, was it by grace? How did you find this compassion uh, to be able to have this conversation and trust in this process of, of uh of rehumanizing the situation and re and and uh re word is escaping me um restorative justice go through yeah. this process yeah 
Um, I feel like I've minimized this in the past um, in the hopes of being like relatable. <laughs> um, but one aspect of that is that I've done a lot of deep healing work. Um, I've been really blessed to assist an indigenous elder on her retreats focused on like sacred women and healing our grief. And, and that's helped me in a lot of ways understand greater context. Um, I think everything that's shown me that, that, yeah, everything that's shown me this and like, and just like, hold on, let me find my wording. Like my own belief system wants to hold faith in humanity. And like one of the most devastating outcomes of rape for me was like, I felt like love had lost on the planet. Mm. This also happened like right before Trump was elected, right as the whole Brock Turner case was going viral. Like it just felt so heavy and global. And really I was like, love has lost. And so for me, one of the things that broke my heart the most was like, wow, this human turned off his empathy for a bit and, and look what happened. And that terrified me. And so why would I ever want to be someone who turns off my empathy? So for myself, it made a lot of sense to be like, I need to figure this human out. Like I need to just look to context, look to rape culture, like figure out what's going on. Because if I am able to see this human in the same degrading way that he saw me, then that's, that's horrible. Like that's really traumatizing for me and really saddening. So it's just not what my soul wanted or even could be capable of for me personally. Um, and then there's a lot of factors. Like I was studying social work and working with that elder and I was just constantly being immersed in these teachings about context and just really, really seeing how over and over again, there's no such thing. I feel there's no such thing as a bad seed. I don't think anyone comes into this world as a bad seed. I think we have to ask like what happened between the time a baby was born innocent and pure and the time that this violence happened, um, what conditioning was internalized, what media was taken in, what messages were coming from parents, um, what violence were they witnessing or experiencing? I think I just became really clear on like, okay, that that belief system is how I'll survive in the world. Because if I had allowed myself to adopt this belief that um, humans are inherently bad, um, you know, we're all destined to just like kill each other and suffer. And yeah, I mean, if we had all restorative justice, then every man would be out raping every woman because all they would, they'd probably get free therapy. This is what the mindset is with this whole idea that we're twisted and innately evil. 
you know, and there are some situations where we've got to protect ourselves from somebody, you know, I mean, like Ted Bundy, for example, I mean, maybe that we, there's a, there's a world that we could live in where a Ted Bundy can exist and not perpetuate the, you know, the serial murders and rapes and torture that he did. Uh, but we don't live in that society. I don't think yet, uh, where someone like Ted Bundy could be, uh, work through restorative justice. Um, you know, however, we can't take every single act. You know, there are situations, uh, a friend of mine, he's been an, a criminal defense attorney since 2007 or 2008. He actually owns the largest Spanish-speaking criminal defense law firm in the Bay Area now. Uh, through, through time, it's just grown radio shows and all that stuff. And uh, something that he says that he believes that, you know, 15 to 20% of his clients are innocent. And uh, they're accused of sex crimes. Um, in, in his case, it's generally people that don't have green cards and they're, they get in a fight with their spouse or, or, or whomever. And they say, they, they find out from their friends that if they report a uh, sex crime, that now they're a victim of a crime and they get to have a, what's called a U visa and stay in the country. But they don't realize the consequence to you know, the, you know, their husband. And then all of a sudden they go, no, 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 I just, you know, it wasn't really like that. And they can't take it back because the minute... The prosecutor has it, they take it, you know, and he's run into situations where people are going to do 20 to 25 years off a plea bargain, you know, because there's 0% chance they could win that and they can't afford a trial and the, and the public defenders just don't have the resources. So they, they almost always plea bargain the case. So you have people that are, you know, completely innocent of crimes you know, getting, you know, there is no restorative process available. I mean, it's if, and if it's with a minor or even an accusation with a minor, the consequences are extreme. I mean, it's the modern day scarlet letter. That scarlet letter will have you not live with in certain places. You have to notify your neighbors of certain things. And if you go to prison, even murderers will come and beat the hell out of you, rape you, kill you and get kudos and applause, not only in the prison, but also by the public at large. Yeah, yeah. It's so horrible. And just the cycle of dehumanization that's been justified is, is like unfathomable to me. Um, and the more I look at it, the more like perplexed I am. Um, There's not so much an easy solution. Like the, the solutions are getting yeah. together and spending time and working through this challenging stuff together. I believe like we're doing now having these tough conversations when we know that we're outside of the fringe. I know like somebody's going to listen to this and probably post you know, who the hell is this guy? I think he is, you know, have you ever had sex with a girl while she's intoxicated? Then, you know, then you're also a supporter of rape culture, you know, like, or, or whatever, or whatever that may be. So it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of stones that are thrown by anybody that mentions it. It's really interesting. And, and I've received um, hundreds and thousands of, of emails and comments since my stories come out. And I've just heard every um, opinion along the spectrum. Um, something I think is really important to clarify when you were bringing up Ted Bundy and things is that restorative justice places incarceration as a last resort. So it doesn't say we should never, ever, ever do this, but it says let's try absolutely everything else possible before resorting to this, which I think is great, <laughs> which I think is great. The other thing that I think is fascinating is that, especially because you're in the States, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially in the States. And I. I We're trying to turn, uh, not me personally, but the States is trying to turn everything into the States, but just per poorer versions of what we right. have here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're Canadian, <laughs> um, right? You're Canadian, eh? Uh -huh. 
(laughs) (laughs) Somehow I know more about the incarceration system in the States, I think, because it's just talked about more. Oh, I think because we have more people incarcerated than probably like the rest of the world combined or something. Yeah, it's mass incarceration. It's just just brutal there. But I I don't believe that Canada's system is so, so great either. Um, But what I know is that the circumstances that are created within prison are exactly the circumstances that have been proven to lead to vi- to lead to violence. So that's just like the least logical thing in the world I've ever heard. Because it's like, how are we going to rehabilitate um, criminals? And this is all in the name of public safety because that's people's. Well, biggest even a criminal is a noun, right? So someone that got caught in a criminal activity, a lot of times they're forced to get into do criminal acts. You know, I mean, I could tell you me firsthand, I was breaking laws just in order to survive in the hood, you know, and I have friends that still right now to this day that have families that break the law in order to survive. It's not the, the law is somewhat arbitrary, like, you know, and then in addition to all that, the minute you go to prison or jail, now you're in there around a bunch of other people. You know, your nervous system, if it wasn't already fucked up, what it probably is, now it's on super hyper alert. You know, and if you're able to turn it off in there, you turn your nervous system off everywhere. It's not like, oh, okay, now I'm out of jail. Now I'm going to turn my nerve, like, oh, now I'm going to turn that exactly. back on. And then you add to that probation, parole, kids with other, with, as a man, kids with other women. So now you've got like child support from multiple different directions and tons of possibility for more conflict. And in in addition to all of that, you add that it's hard to get work once you have a criminal background. So the type of work that you're doing, now you're working with other felons in this type of thing, and they're also hurting for money. How are we going to get some money to be able to... It's like the economic... It's it's woven in so deep and in so many places. And most of these people come from generations that have been in this situation, you know? like, And then... Yeah. And the minute that they do something, you're bad. You know, why did you, why did you do this thing? And, you know, and I'm, you know, what they did is bad. We shouldn't say like, go do a whole bunch more of that shit or no, you should just be able to go like, you know, here's, here's a thousand bucks, go do some more meth, you know, or whatever they're doing. You know, I mean, yeah, this is a big, a big thing for me as a juvenile, as a, as a under 18, I dealt with a lot of this shit. My whole goal was just to get out of the projects, get out of the hood and I finally got out. And then when I was 21, I get pulled over. Uh, actually, my friend got pulled over, and he had a, and he had a uh, ticket for selling alcohol to a minor. He ends up getting arrested for a warrant. And they said, well, you want to drive? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll drive. They pulled my ID, and they found something from when I was 14 or 15 years old. That like, and, I, and I find out now that like, if I had an attorney, they would have just thrown this thing out. It had been six or seven years since then. But they didn't know what to do. So what they do? They brought me to juvenile hall. What's the problem of bringing a ju- uh, a 21-year-old to juvenile hall? Well, they can't keep you with the general population. So where do you think they put you? Solitary confinement for a month. I mean, you take somebody that's been through a lot of stuff and you throw them in solitary confinement for a month with no yoga. There was nothing. No yoga, no books, no meditation. I didn't know shit. I didn't even know what yoga was. I thought it was some move that they did in Street Fighter. You know, Dalsim would go, yoga fire, yoga flame. That's the only thing I knew about yoga. Nobody's doing fucking yoga. Now you go to yoga. There's like, I went to Atlanta and there's a, there's this woman's card. It said yoga in the hood. And I was like, <laughs> they didn't have that shit in the nineties, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree. The system is broken. I, I think restorative justice is a beautiful thing. I don't quite know. I can't speak to it. I know this is a indigenous cultures way of handling problems is, uh, 
they would look at ways to resolve things amongst themselves because they realize like where is a way where the fuck are you going to put these people away like what for whatever for how long forever and then like where are you putting them like what what's happening there oh shit they're getting more traumatized oh shit you're going to put them to get more traumatized and then they're going to come out and they're just going to behave man i think they want to behave when they come out man they get ankle bracelets and drug tested Man, they'll, they'll find something to smoke to not feel what the hell they're feeling. And, like, it's not working, clearly. So, like, if if it was working, then I'd be like, oh, okay, shit, you know, punish the shit out of everybody. But clearly it's not stopping shit. It's getting worse. And, and, and to the degree that it's getting worse, it's still getting worse, and more people are locked up than ever before. And, uh, yeah. yeah, anyways, this is something I'm really passionate about. So I feel <laughs> super stoked to be talking to you about it. Um Sometimes I get on these tirades and I, I don't know when to hand the ball back over. <laughs> no, it's, it's all amazing. And, and I just, I, I think this conversation is so powerful because there's so many angles to it. And I'll be very honest. It's, it's of course hard for me to speak about this for a million reasons, especially because it's rooted in my own experience of trauma, but it's, of all those seats that were in that restorative justice circle, me, my mom, my assailant, his friend, the lawyer, whatever, it's easiest to speak from my seat because people are least likely to be like, screw you, rape victim, like you're an idiot, which still happens. Mm -hmm. But if I was the person who had perpetrated and I was speaking out now, no one would be listening like guns would be a blazing you know like it just it wouldn't be this it wouldn't open up conversation it would be much harder and that's definitely due to the stigma around criminals which yeah is a label and something i love about restorative justice is they don't even use the language of victim perpetrator they say person who caused harm person who experienced harm and they acknowledge that everyone can be both of those people mm. at once which is it's just so much more real and to just offer that spaciousness between the person and and the label versus saying you're a criminal saying you're a person first and foremost you're a person and you caused harm let's address that like that just feels so much better in my body right away right away and same with being called a victim i'm like oh like how many times do i have to hear myself called a victim until i'm just like slumped forward and like hiding myself and wearing a turtleneck every day like mm -hmm, <laughs> you know mm -hmm. but when some of those person who experienced harm it's like okay yeah that that is what happened um you know, and, and that's why we say, that's why we're calling our organization Rehumanize as well, because it's a, about rehumanizing every single voice in that circle and really just acknowledging like, yeah, we're all people like forget, forget throwing each other away and like justifying hurting one another and all these things like this this movement asks us to uplift our cultural standards of empathy and to believe in people's capacity to transform and that is is terrifying for people but it's like what else would i want to fight for like why would i want to be like yes let's 
Like, let's all settle for the way things are now. Well, in the like, Bible, yeah. they said, right, if you, if a kid doesn't know, I remember my parents, my mom telling me this, uh, if kids don't, and it caused a big ordeal, if kids don't obey their parents, they should be taken out into the village and stoned to death. You know, I mean, wow. you know, I, I remember we were in Kauai just recently and we, and my mom comes from a hugely traumatizing past for herself. You know, I like, I don't envy or blame her for the, you know, I, I wish that she could see a different light in some way and kind of understand other people's plight. But at the same time, she doesn't even give herself the, the, uh, the compassion to realize the amount of pain that she's been through. I mean, she publicly shares, I mean, she doesn't have a public platform, but she'll share with anyone that will listen. They know mm-hmm. her first sexual experience. She was molested as a child in Brazil. She, she grew up in Brazil, was born in China. And then her first experience was, you know, being, you know, it was a rape. She was accosted from people from the church and she was drugged and almost died. She was hospitalized and the nurses all came there and prayed. And she believes that that's what saved her life. And, you know, and from that, she became a fundamentalist, you know, Christian, like taking the Bible literally as the one truth. And uh, mm-hmm. it's caused major challenges in her own trauma healing because she won't look at it and she has no problem at all. She, you know, I can't believe these women, you know, someone, oh, somebody, you know, someone grabbed your butt. Oh, too bad. whoop de doo Get over it. It's her, kind of her attitude. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of traumatized women and men are perpetuating this story of like, get the fuck over it, you know, type of thing, you know? And then then the opposite is you get stuck and you can't get out of the victim thing. You can't, it's like, it's not even a choice. You're just in it. And like, everybody's confirming it. And you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You know, I have that sometimes too. Like, oh my gosh, Zach, like you've been through all this shit. Like, how are you okay? Oh man, whatever you do is going to be great. You know? And I'm like, shit, like my life isn't even that hard compared to some of the people I knew growing up, you know, like some people I knew growing up been through some shit, like real bad shit, like addicted to crack at birth and stuff, you know, like, so. Yeah, absolutely. I have been really fascinated learning more about empathy. And one theory that I, that feels really true in my body is like, um, everyone has equal access to empathy. Like we can't lose our empathy. We all have this. Um, But what happens is our upbringing and our social context determines what we think is normal. So, so because I'm like a privileged white human who grew up in a middle-class family, I wasn't exposed to very much violence growing up. Um, and so I was never able to normalize violence. So it's, it's clear to me that when someone else experiences violence, I'm like, oh no, like that's not normal. And that's what makes my empathy kick in. Whereas someone who's grown up in a more severe upbringing with more um, chaos and violence and a lack of safety forever, it's not that they don't have access to empathy, but it's that they start to normalize that and think, this is my baseline for safety. This is normal. And so when someone else experiences violence that that's been normal to them forever, they're like, Oh, it's not a big deal. Um, and it's not because they don't have the capacity for empathy. It's, it's because they've normalized violence, Mm. which is quite, quite interesting. I don't know if that's my experience, Marley. Uh, 
like to share with you mine uh -huh. uh, because I thought I felt empathy or love or connection. I just thought I did. I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I love my partner, Madeline, you know, you know, I love all these people that I that that are where I run in something called ecstatic dance. Salt Lake City is a big twice a week, big community event. We have a permaculture vegan for permaculture food forest and mm -hmm. we partner with the Jung Society for a lot of events. So we're doing all these things. So I know a lot of people and, you know, I'm, I live a very unique life where I'm actually able to be really connected with people. And uh, and so I thought I'd felt all of these things. And uh, I ended up trying because I had what I got diagnosed with something called complex PTSD, which like I'm kind of the poster child for that shit. So uh, I'd never known about it. I thought PTSD is something if you go to Vietnam or something and, you know, bomb blows up by your head and then now you have PTSD. I didn't go to Vietnam, therefore I don't, I don't have a problem. You know, I'd, look at me, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know, that's, that's, that was my attitude. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd read books about empathy and I'd read books about compassion. And if you asked me, I would have said I had it. And like, by the way I acted, you'd be like, oh yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. He seems like he has it. And then I did, uh, with a psychiatrist, I did MDMA psychotherapy, right? And I was kind of terrified to take it. I don't really do well with anything that alters me, that gets me out of the position of control. Like, it was terrifying to be out of control. Which, go figure, when you're out of control and bad stuff happens, you associate being out of control with absolute terror. People that are highly traumatized, I find, people from the hood, hate being on airplanes. They won't fly on airplanes. They're all terrified of flying on airplanes. So there's some random stranger in a plane full of strangers flying a death rattle up in the sky. And it's terrifying. But what I found was during MDMA, somehow it overrode. It was terrifying for me because I had to like surrender. And that surrender feeling, like I felt like I was dying. I mean, it wasn't painful physically, but I was just like, I can't let go. If you would have asked me if I had let go, I would have said, oh yeah, I always let go. But I realized I hadn't. And once this happened, I went through and I experienced a whole bunch of traumatic shit, full force, full color, full body, like, like look like I'm seizuring, jaw slamming open and shut. But after this experience, after that release, this trauma, like, I mean, it's constant process. I still have it happen a lot less now. But all of a sudden, I was able to make eye contact with Madeline. I was able to make eye contact with the therapist. And I, for the first time ever, felt, felt truly connected. And like I felt real empathy as opposed to what I would consider contrived empathy. Like I didn't hurt other people because like the very, like it was kind of like your model of the world. You couldn't accept the rape thing, being this guy being punished and put in this terrible place and then it just perpetuating forever. And this is what we do. Rape is just part of being human and we've got to punish those people. That's how that you couldn't tolerate that model of the world. I don't know if I really felt empathy before or if I only did things from an empathetic perspective because intellectually, if everybody would just go fuck everybody over and just do whatever the hell they felt like, the world would be so terrible I wouldn't want to live in it. Uh, but I didn't truly feel the empathy. And I hear this type of stuff from scientific rationalists, people like Steven Pinker, where he's like, well, it's just totally rational. Of course you wouldn't go out and hurt people because if you hurt people, they'll hurt you. And I'm like, he doesn't get it. Like he gets it intellectually, but he's not feeling that connection. When you don't feel that connection, it's really easy to clear cut a forest. Or it's really easy to kill an animal too, just like, and actually like torture and rape animals. Because that's what happens, our current uh, way that we do agriculture, and especially here in the United States. As a matter of fact, in Hawaii, where I spend half my time, they, they can't slaughter cattle on, the, on the, the islands of Hawaii. So they take, and it's all local grass-fed, right? And they take these cows. First of all, they rape the, the female cows, and they kidnap. I mean, this is real, right? They kidnap at birth the, uh, the baby calves. 
The male calves, they turn into veal, which they chain them up in a dark room. I don't want to go into too much of the graphic detail. People will stop listening. But it's terrible. Then they take this grass-fed local beef on the island. Right. They can't slaughter them. So they put them on a, on a ship, on a barge. And they ship them to your country, Canada. So they go into Canada. It's like a three weeks to a month, freezing cold temperatures, rocking back and forth, vomiting on each other. It's terrible conditions. A lot like the slave ships that came over from Africa. Like this is, this is where this stuff stems from. Right, this idea that we're going to other these beings, that these beings are just here for whatever the fuck we want in the most efficient way, right? And some people treat women like this, maybe less so now than before, but for a long time that was the case. I did a podcast on sex trafficking. There's still women and little boys bought and sold, mostly women, but a lot of little boys also, and and it's oftentimes by women that were also sold into this, so they're perpetu- perpetuating this same cycle. But they're shipped to Canada, then shipped to, the, to California where they're slaughtered. So, and then they're shipped back to Hawaii, and they're considered local grass-fed beef. And this is the process that goes through this very compassionate way of eating. I think it's woven into the way that we eat. I think it's woven into our othering of the planet, of the trees. Of We just take total disregard of these mountains. You know, like, oh, that's my mountain now. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want with it. That's the definition of property, is something that you can violate. Did you know that? That's actually the legal definition of property, wow. something that you can violate. Whoa. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. 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 I, I, think, I think there's a lot of, like, contradicting truths, and I think that, I mean, I definitely don't know everything. <laughs> I got something for you. I got something for you. I was talking to the criminal defense attorney, this guy that has this huge law firm in the Bay Area. He said something very fascinating because we're putting these people into this system and not doing our own. And we, we kind of hurt ourselves, too, because we don't get to do the healing work as well. And granted, maybe this rege- restorative justice doesn't work for this person. And then they end up going to jail or prison because... That's what's like, it's clear, like you got to probably make, I don't know, I, I want to hear that. You probably got to make a decision of whether you felt like this was the right thing for him to do or whether you wanted to go to the, through the legal system. It wasn't like you went into this and said, okay, it's got to be this. And, and he's like, fuck you. And then you're like, oh man, I wish I would have chose that he went to jail. Like he, you probably had to have some say in it. And I want to hear that. What I wanted to point out was that uh, built into that same system that we're pushing these people into is the idea, what do you think, this is a fascinating thing, imagine you're walking through California, and I think the laws are pretty standard across the United States, and you walk up, and, I, and you just start beating the hell out of somebody. Versus, you walk up, don't beat them at all, grab their iPhone, and run. Which consequence do you think is more severe? Beating the person up? Nope, grabbing the iPhone. Because it's yeah. a property crime. It actually right. carries a longer sentence. That's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. But it goes back to that ability to violate property. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I I believe, and I could be mistaken if this is true or not, it was something like, I think it was like as late as the 70s that women were considered property in the United States. And then once they were no longer considered property, the consequences for rape actually diminished. It was actually higher when they were considered. They were considered either their their husband's property or their father's property. And when it was a property crime, the the uh, the consequences were more severe. I'm not suggesting that the consequences for rape be that we like cut off people's arms and hang them upside down by their toenails while the other prisoners beat the hell out of them. I'm still going back to we've got to do something better because it's not going away. You know, like chaining people up and putting them. It's like when you go to a festival and it says like you know I went to Beloved recently. 
And there, there was this thing that says there is no away because people just buy things and they say I'm going to throw it away sure. as if it goes somewhere else. Like lock them away, throw them away, throw it away. Yeah, lock them so. up. You know, like the that whole thing. Lock them up. Like what? But like where? And what? Like why is this happening? <laughs> like like yeah. why? Like th- what we find is the minute we take one person out, another person fills the place. It's like, and it usually gets louder. In my opinion, you know, I feel like the president we currently have is an even greater manifestation of the shadow of our country uh, than any other president. And I feel like if we don't learn from this one, if we just shame him and put like pictures of him fat and naked with a, you know, a small flaccid penis up and, you know, paint him like a pig, like, I don't think that's working. Uh, I feel I I feel like people are just more they're getting quieter. You know, they're saying, okay, I'm going to vote for Trump and I'm not going to tell anyone. I, okay, I learned my lesson. I don't tell anyone I'm voting for Trump, but I definitely don't want to be hung like him, you know, in both figuratively and literally, um, as, as he's depicted. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and vote for Trump. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that people are shaming, you know, people and that this is just going to perpetuate the same, same problem indefinitely. Yeah. I think I think the shift towards restorative justice is amazing because it looks at the root and it really, really holds context as very telling. There's like this, um, I forget where the story is rooted, um, but I learned it when I started studying social work and it was about this model of like, it's the story of like, there's all these dead babies floating down a river and it's like an mm-hmm. interesting example. There's like I a, could see it. A woman who's trying to take babies out one at a time. She's like, oh no, where are these babies coming from? And she starts taking the babies out one at a time and it's just piling up and they're coming so fast and she can't take them all out. And then someone eventually is like, why don't we go upstream and figure out like what the hell is happening upstream? Like where are all these babies coming from? Mm -hmm. And that to me is like putting this shift on of like, why are people doing what they're doing? Why is Trump the way he is? Let's let go of this like bad seed paradigm that's like, oh, you know, well, he's just he's just like that or whatever. Um, and like punishing or ridiculing these people and instead go upstream and figure out what made them this way and how can we shift the route? How can we shift the circumstances that created them to be the way they are? Um, and that's what I love about restorative justice. And I think it's important to share that um, this is not the way the system works, especially for adult sex crimes, which, as you've shared, has has so much stigma around it, um, which it should because sex crimes are are horrible. Um, so basically, like I I essentially like fought for restorative justice. Like I was like, this is what I want. And like the initial prosecutor I I dealt with was like, you're delusional. This is not how things work. Yeah, you're idealistic and altruistic. This is not the way the world works. Who are you so naive? You think that the world's Uh just filled of love and compassion? Like what if we just let all of the rapists out on the street? Imagine what that would do. They look at this from the perspective of, you know... But you're following your heart. It's not like someone guilted you into doing this. Like this was your deep heart calling to do this. It wasn't like you're like, I'm going to force myself to do this so I could be a good person. It is my deep heart calling. I would say too, I think a lot of people have this vision that restorative justice, the people who participate have to be this like spiritual holier than thou. I have forgiven like bless all beings archetype. Um, And that's not 
true. Like restorative justice has so many gifts for the survivor or victim, whatever you want to say. Um, I, I had a need for closure, for accountability to be looked in the eye and acknowledged as a human. I had a need to ask questions that had been burning within me and to get answers to those questions. Like this is something that, that I hear reflected in other victims so often is like, I just want a chance to like sit down with this person and figure out what's going on. And like clear what I need to be cleared, say my piece and have it heard. Whereas the criminal justice system keeps a victim and a perpetrator as far away as possible. So you'll never, ever get that, that conversation. The only thing you'll witness is a script written by defense lawyers in a criminal trial, which is typically anything but the truth. Um, so I think that's important to feel into. Um, there was something else you said that made me want to say something. Hmm. What was it? Maybe it'll come back after. Oh, I know what it was. It was, um, yeah, this, this prosecutor's mindset was pure fear and just like a clear example of someone who's so clearly been taught to believe that incarceration is what keeps all of us safe. He would have and to her, believe that in order, or he or she would have to believe that in order to right. be able to do what they do. That's the thing is that in order for people to do what they do, they have to believe it. In order to believe it, they have to perpetuate and proselytize that belief to other people. And uh -huh. those stories are so rooted that it tugs at our own fear. You know, it's an yeah. order. It's like in order for you us to be. Pr 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 in order for us to show and demonstrate a different way of being in the world, it's almost like we have to provide a hundred times the amount of proof that this is a good idea, that right. a better idea, because it goes against the way it's always been. Somehow this new idea, you need even more references in order to be able to show that. But then the very fact that it's, that it's not even, it's an ancient idea. This is, this is how cultures stayed together. You know, if yeah. you want to see how cultures stay together, it was through these processes. It wasn't through punishing and separation. There was no place to separate them. They couldn't just move to Las Vegas from Los Angeles or from Toronto to Ontario. I don't know how close those are to each other. I've never been to Canada, but I had a Canadian fake ID when I was growing up. <laughs> I said I was from Alberta. <laughs> it probably looked nothing like the ID. I think I paid 25 bucks for it in Berkeley or something. But, uh, but yeah, there was, no, there was nowhere to go, to escape from. This is an interesting thing. I did an interview, went live today on my podcast with Michael Mead, the mythologist and storyteller. Are you familiar with Michael Mead's work? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's such a, I'm so honored that he would have me, that, like he would give me an hour and 45, I think it was an hour and 45 minute interview, really long one. And him, him and I have a lot of stories that parallel, like the initiatory process, the solitary confinement happened at the same age, you know, different details, but a lot of similarities. And something that I remember him saying, and I run, I help facilitate and organize. I founded a community here. Now a whole bunch of people run. It's not my thing anymore. I, I actually probably am less involved than most of the people that are on the leadership team. But uh, what 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 we struggled with, and I ended up having this is how we came into contact after I had initially met him, is that we had some people that were just acting absolutely batshit crazy, in my opinion. Like I had no idea what to do. They were just like making up whatever the hell would cause the big. Like if you could say something, like this person's a rapist, and this person you know, makes things unsafe for children. And, you know, you know, this person is the devil and a reptilian, a Luciferian, just all sorts of, like, if 
if you could, Skeksis, you know, like they, they were delusional. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm not so quick to just get him out of here. And in this case, I tried everything that I could think of, and everything that I would try would make me more deep into the damn thing. Like, it was like that saying, like, from a, from a distance, you can't tell who the crazy person is. The one that's crazy or the one that's talking to the crazy one. Like, it got to that point. But he had mentioned that he had brought, been brought into a Native American tribe uh, to do some mediation because they had had a situation where people within the tribe were, and he's not Native American, he's Irish from New York, right? Is the the challenges is that uh, they believed in restorative justice, but they like didn't know what the hell to do because these these people kept selling meth to the people in the tribe, and like some of the kids, I guess, had overdosed and stuff, and maybe even some died, and and that caused the meth itself caused even more problems, and so but the, the but the tribe was like we can't just like you know kick them out, we don't know what the hell to do, and he's like well why the hell are you calling me? I'm Irish and from New York, like 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 don't you have an elder there? And the, he's they're like you know. The el- they don't trust the elders because the elders are also doing crazy shit. Like, the whole thing was was corrupted, you know? It's not like it was for Native Americans, you know, 400, 500, 600 years ago, you know? Like, they're also influenced by all the shit that's going on around them. Meth didn't exist, for example. Like, that's just one of the many things. Like, they're not on the same land that they used to be. They can't grow the same food, you know? They're... Yeah, don't get me started, right? But uh, and I'm not even native, and I look at this, and I'm like, shit. If I was native, I'd be so pissed to like, like go by. Like I'm where I'm staying right now is this big ass house. Not wait, it's my it's my partner's family's house, and we're living on Apache Circle, and there's no fucking Apaches here, you know. So uh, and it's Comanche Court or something over there, you know. And I and I see this shit, and if I was Native American, if I was uh, if I was uh, Apache, and I was coming on Apache Circle walking around. Someone would probably call the cops. And the cops would come and see, why am I trespassing? And I'm like, well, I'm fucking on Apache Circle. I'd be pissed. Like, I'm already pissed. I'm already, you know, but I'd be really pissed. And it takes a lot of drugs to numb the pissness. Because otherwise, they're even more rowdy. But anyways, what he figured out was, they ended up coming there. And they said, well, they, want, they believe you because you're on television. So he said, look, here's what we got to do. We got to figure out. We kicked them out of the tribe, but there's got to be a way for them to come back in, like a reinitiation. Like, what is it that has to happen in order for them to be, what is the restorative justice piece? Like, what needs to happen? And so they figured it out. They, like, kicked them out, and they said, okay, if they want to return, you know, I don't know what it is, counseling and stopping meth and drug tests and all of those things, and, like, working and apologizing and community. I don't don't know what the details were, but I'm sure that there was lots of details. But it's a lot more effective than just kicking them out, because guess what? Now, what are they going to... Where are they? Where is a way? They're going to be living in some other tribe doing the same fucking thing, right? Like, especially if they feel that they can't ever come back. And in some cases, people are too far gone. Just like you said, you know, you got a Ted Bundy situation. You got something. You just don't know what to do. And that was a very humbling experience for us because we've had a lot of people that had like breaks and gone crazy and done shit. We've been able to like work through it. But we, you know, just when we think we've got it all figured out, we get presented with someone that, like, no matter what we do, it just gets worse. But I uh, just wanted to share that story with you because I think it'd be powerful, potentially, for you to hear. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I love that you brought so much of the roots in because I think a narrative that's been surfacing is, like, oh, like, new age hippie chick has idea to sit in a healing circle with her rapist. Yeah. And uh, I get it. Um, and beyond that, <laughs> restorative justice is not something that like popped into my heart during a dream that I had. Like, you know, this is like a, 
I mean, it kind of did in a way, like, <laughs> in terms of, like, just having a want to, like, sit down with this person and not wanting to do the whole court thing. Um, but actually learning about restorative justice, it's like, yeah, this has deep roots in Indigenous cultures and Mennonite cultures and Jewish cultures. Like, it has very old roots. And there's been incredible research done, especially, like, in places like New Zealand where restorative justice is really implemented that show um, crime rates reducing with restorative justice increasing and incarceration lessening. And it's like, that's so contrary to what we believe. And that was like this kind of power moment that I got to have of this prosecutor being like, oh, sweetie, like we can't do what you're asking. Like rape is bad. Like, don't you understand? And my response was like, yeah, like rape is so bad that we have to consider something different than the criminal justice system. Sexual oh, violence. Wow, I never thought of this. So Pan, right. Pan, the the from the Greek pantheon, uh, mm -hmm. he would essentially chase down the innocent nymphs and actually violate them, essentially rape them, and then somehow in this process something would occur to where they would become one in some way like there was some type of That's healing that happened I, I haven't thought this through i am hesitated to even say it uh but i definitely can't be attacked for saying this because this is verifiable in greek mythology and i'm not saying that the, the greeks had it all figured out by any means um uh however i do think that there is some type of healing that could be there i'm not saying that rape is something that we should strive for by any means but what do the hell do we do when it does happen? Because to say that it is just bad and it's just never going to happen doesn't seem to be enough. And that we're going to, it seems like right now we just, we label it bad, terrible, the worst thing ever, especially if there's an age discrepancy. Um, also, it's, it's, we could stop it from happening by punishing the rapist. But it, we've been following this process for a really long time. And just like you said, it's not working. And then there are situations that somehow are healing it, like yeah. in New Zealand, which you mentioned. So uh, mm -hmm. I think our belief system... And not just New Zealand. That's, that's just one example. Yeah. Yeah, from ancient cultures, that was always how they, they, they've handled and treated it. From what I understand, some ancient cultures, maybe some other ones, they would just guillotine, their, guillotine them, you know? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I guess the thing is that there's not... We're, we're not going to come up with a solution to solve all of the problems of rape and the justice yeah. system potentially on this, on this call. But the important element is to start having the dialogue and maybe exactly. some of the seeds are here and maybe, you know, we've planted some of the seeds and, and someone else could help water those. And maybe someone else has some seeds that are even further along and they hear this podcast and they say, Oh wow, we know this person that's doing this type of work and look what's happening. And I think, you know, it takes a lot of courage to be able to face your, uh, perpetrator if you want to call him the the person who harmed you um and to deal with all of the backlash that you've gotten even from the prosecutor uh and now <laughs> not only do you go through this new process but now everybody knows like like most of the time it just keeps secret and i think maybe that's part of the restorative justice process is now you live as someone who has this wound that is healing but like there's a scar over it but it's stronger than it maybe was before maybe you feel even i don't know i'm putting words in your mouth do you feel more whole now that this happened and you've done this than you did prior to it happening 
not that you wanted it to happen, but do you feel more whole, like more yourself? Prior to the actual rape, you're asking? Yes. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really powerful question. Uh, I I guess I just want to be really clear that I don't justify rape ever. And I don't like this like narrative of like someone being raped and us being like, well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, I hate that shit too. My my, my mom would always yeah. say, well, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, it right. builds character, you know? Yeah. So. And, and I will say that this absolutely transformed my life. I think there's the reality that that this happened when I was 21 and now I'm 24 and I'm sure a lot of change would have happened in those years anyways. Who knows? Yeah, who knows, right? But this sent me on such a deep journey. There was so much that I had been repressing in my life that I just had never grieved for. And like this just opened the floodgates and allowed me to feel the pain of the world, like to to feel like to really feel like the root of like, wow, like human suffering <laughs> mm-hmm. on such a global level. Like it, it allowed me to gain so much empathy for my brothers and sisters and for what we're all navigating. Um, it inspired me to question so much about our culture and to just like, I think it became life or death too. Like, because I was suicidal at some points, like I had no option to go on this kind of like healing journey. So like I ended up building community that sounds much like what you have, like mm. ecstatic dance and you go to ecstatic Sarah- dance too. Oh yeah. Oh, I, that's, I great. Dance. I love ecstatic dance. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, by the time I emerged from that like crisis state, it's like I looked around me and I had this incredible community of like healers and resilient beings. And I had like just all these amazing tools. Um, So there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of gifts. And I think what's so incredible about my story, like, and just like something that drives me so much and sharing it is just like this embodiment of like, hey, world, like, look what's possible. Like my justice experience actually ended with joy. Like that is, I have never heard someone leave a criminal trial and be like, I feel so much closure and joy right now. And maybe maybe even hope for humanity. Right. Like I felt so much hope restored. Like all these narratives of like, people can't change. I was like, wow, like transformation is possible. And I think think it's important we point this out. This isn't because you were trying to be a good person or this is like what all people that are victims of rape should do. Uh, This is something that felt alive for you, that felt in your heart, you felt deeply called and you went against what people were saying, don't do this, you're, you know, naive or foolish, this is not how the system works. But this is something that you felt deep in your heart to do. I, I think that's important distinction. We're not saying that you should, if you were raped, you should forgive the person who raped you and go into a room with them and you know, sit around with, you know, some people just can't handle that. And that's not what's being called up. You'll feel it in your heart if this is what you're supposed to do. And if you feel that they should be punished and that's what's going on, then that's something that you've got to follow that, that experience. This conversation, this dialogue is just an invitation if you were kind of feeling that you wanted this restorative justice practice or 
you know, this is something that does feel right for you. Like, we're not here saying that that's, I'm not first, well, I've had some situations in my, I've never been in the position to do anything about the situations that I've been through in my life. And, uh, you know, I don't know what I would decide to do. But I think that what's important is to decide with your heart and not try to be, uh, my friend Charles Eisenstein, he says, stop trying to be a good person. Like that, like, you ha- like that's not an alignment. You're, you're hold- that's the, this is the same problem, is that to be a good person is to serve in the military or to go do some job you hate or whatever. You know, in this case, if you're doing this just to be a good person, you're going against yourself. That's a form of violence against yourself. And the challenge is a lot of people that have experienced rape you know, oftentimes are people that struggle with some boundaries of some kind because they've had abuse or the opposite spectrum. Maybe they've had a lot of privilege. They don't even know they should have a boundary up when they should because they feel like, oh, this person's fine. You know, like I, you know, I don't know, you know. So uh, I think it's important we make that distinction that we're not saying that everybody should use restorative justice or that like rape is some gift in order for us to be in a position. I could picture someone saying like, you're using your rape to like start a business or something. I mean, I picture the just... I've had so many people poke at me for every possible thing that they could possibly think of, things that I don't even see. And, and there must be something there because sometimes it gets me. I'm like, oh, am I like that? You know, like, why? Like, where are they, where are they poking at me? And there's some sensitivity there for me. So I feel that constantly coming up in a lot of my podcasts, especially the more real they get and the more controversial they get, which this is up yeah. there in the controversial range. You know? quite controversial. I think I, I really like that you brought that in. And I know I touched on that before when I was saying like, a lot of this was done because of a need that I had personally. And I know there's so many survivors who reflect like I need to help just like form a narrative of what happened. And that involves me asking this person some questions, different, different reasons that survivors might want restorative justice. Absolutely. It's not for everyone. And that's great. I think that, or I know all we're saying with rehumanize in terms of of survivors is we need to look towards survivors and ask them what does justice look like to you instead of putting our outdated cultural impositions on to survivors and saying oh you were wronged we need to lock this person up and that's going to be healing for you get the pitchforks yeah, yeah and especially because like for me for sure like voice being stripped away from me was one of the most painful aspects of trauma. And then going through a system that says, we don't really care what you want. This is how things are done. And then saying, this is for you. This is your justice. I'm like, whoa, this feels terrible versus someone being like, Hey, what, what do you want? What's justice to you? What does that look like? How can we make that happen? And how can we make that feel safe? Well, the defense attorney will try to shame you too. Like, what were you doing in this situation? Why did you come back to like, that you like relive the experience from a defensive standpoint? And then they try to probably figure out where the holes in what you're saying is. Well, you said a minute ago that it lasted for three minutes. And then now you're saying it was 30 minutes. And you're like, I don't know. I don't, you know, like... You know, I find this in just in my own mind with traumatic events. It's really hard to describe exactly what happened because you're in and out of that experience. Yeah, yeah. I did the preliminary trial thing, so I had that experience. Oh, shit. And and so that allows me to look at the contrast Mm -hmm. of what was a trial like and what was a circle like. And um, (laughs) 
the trial was so re-traumatizing and every aspect of the circle was approached as an opportunity for reclamation. Constantly, I was asked, hey, uh, what's going to feel good for you? What makes the space feel more safe? Uh, how can we safeguard triggers? I think that's a really important thing to say about restorative justice. It does not have a uniform approach. Mm. Step one, therapy, step two, eight-hour circle. That's not how it works. Um, it simply says we're prioritizing repair over punishment. Let's look at the parties involved and let's come up with something that's going to bring repair. Much like the story you shared with Michael Mead. It's like, yeah, we, we got to get creative and say who's involved. How can we tend to the wounds that have been created in a way that feels safe for everyone? So, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have that uniform approach. This conversation has been really great, Marley. Thank you very much. I think yeah. this is a perfect endpoint. I'd love to invite my listeners to uh, find ways to connect with you. And do you work with either men and or men and women who have experienced and been on the, the victim's side of the rape? And or do you work with men that may have been on the perpetrator side of rape that are walking around with that guilt and shame that would like to work through that? Do you do any of that work or do you know of anyone that does that work? And how That's would they connect question. with you? Yeah, thank you for opening the floor for that. Um, well, first and foremost, I'll share that. Yeah, we've just uh, founded our organization. It's um, www.rehumanizemovement.com. Um and we absolutely will work with anyone. We're mainly focused on um, raising awareness and education around restorative justice. Um, so we don't necessarily do that like one-to-one -one work, um, but we can refer people to places that do. We also um, do a lot of workshops around gender reconciliation, which is what I was talking about before. And that can include humans of absolutely any gender. Separate from Rehumanize, I do personal work um, focused on retreats and mentorship. Um, for that, you could check out my website, which is Marley Liss. Um, I think you'll probably spell it in your podcast yeah. title, MarleyList.com. Um, so, yeah, I work with absolutely anyone, and I, I do tend to attract um many different aspects of of trauma experience and so i'm well versed and like always honored to work with people in that department mm. what's coming up just super strong for me is uh what if a man has been the perpetrator of a sex crime or sex assault or rape and they wanted to reach out to you to have a conversation about that experience because i think if i'm not sure how this works but i i've i'm a under the impression that if somebody goes to a therapist or something and tells them, hey, I did this crime in the past, that that therapist might have to report it, which essentially yeah. leaves them in this really trapped place that there is no way for them to go get, quote unquote, restorative justice. They probably wouldn't tell other men because those other men might beat the hell out of them. And they're just walking around with this thing like a ticking time bomb. Um, and then at that point, the minute somebody does it once, it's easier and easier to do it again and again. This is serial killers, for example. The minute they kill one person, it just becomes easier and easier for the second, third, fourth, fifth. Right. And this happened in the Nazi concentration camps, too. They would have the soldiers keep a dog, raise the dog, and then on command, they'd have to kill their dog that they became deeply connected with. And it would just break some part of them. And they would 
essentially continue to perpetuate this thing over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And I do need to figure out more about legal obligations. Um, my understanding is that as long as the harm is not continuing, mm. like if it's historical, that's that doesn't mean I have to report. But if it's present or like planned, then there's an obligation to report. And mm. I believe there's an obligation to report if a minor is involved. Um, that's something I would have to look into. Um, but I, I definitely have had people disclose to me that they've caused sexual harm in the past. And it's been quite profound and, and transformative for myself and the other people involved to, to work together and to, to shed shame around that and to see how transformation and repair can be possible both internally and externally. Beautiful. Thank you, Marley. Really yeah, thank you so much for having your time me. and that we went so deep and your willingness to go into all of these deep, dark places. I think it's through <laughs> looking at the darkness uh, that we're able to heal. And, uh, and I know that my podcast, if someone's listening, they don't really expect all rainbows and butterflies unless it's their first time. So yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.